I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. Seth, did you have a good uh, summer break? It was good enough. You know what I say? That's my... Yeah, it was good. Good enough. Yeah. Well, that's... Uh, I, I had a good time off, and uh, it's great to be back doing this. It's been a while. We're kind of knocking some rust off a little bit, it feels like, but um, that's cool. People were patient. Uh, I know lots of people were just every day hoping, oh, man, is this the day that the, the new King Culture episode's going to drop? I mean, I just... I didn't quit getting emailed about it. Actually, I didn't. But. I got as many as zero emails about it. <laughs> that many. Wow. Yeah. So uh, anyway, but we're here. And uh, before we get into really the conversation, we want to just remind everybody that we're going to have a live event at Redemption Church Gateway. We're going to do a King and Culture Live. You're going to get to just sort of see how it happens. Uh, it'll be wildly unimpressive, I think, in that standpoint. But it's going to be Monday night, September 19th. Monday night, September 19th. So we'll have a link in the description, wherever you're listening to this, uh, where you can get a little more information about that. We'd love your RSVP. You don't have to. I mean, if it's kind of a game time decision, you just come. That's fine. But if you could RSVP, it'll help us figure out how to set up the room. We don't know. Like, will this be, you know, 10 people or more? <laughs> we'll find out. So um, anyway. But yeah, thanks for listening, and we'd love to have you join us for that. So, uh, Seth, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about marriage. In particular, does the Bible actually help you be a better spouse? And I think a lot of the questions we get, at least when I talk to my non-Christian friends, there is like an, a sense in which like spirituality is this kind of private thing that doesn't really affect your life. It just kind of goes into this small corner of your heart. It occupies your Sunday mornings or afternoons, but basically doesn't really change uh, you or your way you, you approach things. Yeah, maybe it makes you feel a little better. Yeah, it, it provides some relief. It makes funerals slightly less bad, yeah. and it makes weddings slightly more meaningful, but it's all placebo effect. You know, there's, you know, it's one of those taking tons of supplements. Well, it won't probably hurt you, but yeah. if it makes you think it's helping, then that's fine. And so... What I think is actually the opposite of that is that the biblical vision for marriage absolutely makes you a better spouse. And if you don't have it, you're actually going to be robbing your view of what it means to be a good spouse from Christianity because secular explanations for good spousalhood don't really exist. And it'll be kind of this make it up as you go, poor spouse. And so there's actually a handful of key things that I think the Bible says about marriage when probably a lot of Christians are not actually tapped into that, right? I think there are times where people go, well, because I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit, and I, you know, it probably makes me better at stuff. But part of what you're going to, and we're going to talk about, is how there's actually some key convictions that come from the Scripture that even Christians may not be really leaning into. Yeah, and to some degree, Christians, if they only have a couple of these things and not all of them, uh, they're like half-baked Christianity might make them worse spouse than their secular neighbors. Huh, and And we see that in the data when you look at, surveys of how good someone is, how quality of marriage is, that actually nominally committed Christians are the worst of all spouses, but, huh, really? but like full-throated, full-hearted Christians are the best spouses. And that's true with sexual satisfaction, it's true with service, it's true with sense of satisfaction, not even sexual satisfaction, is that like sporadic or nominal Christians end up being the worst because they're kind of, tend to be using Christianity as a way of branding themselves or uh, avoiding dealing with reality. Yeah. And, and so... In that sense, like a half-baked Christianity 
is just placebo effect, which ends up making you a worse spouse because you're not dealing with the real things going on. So let's dive into it. But before, just one last, I guess, disclaimer thing. I I know there's plenty of people who listen to this that aren't married. And uh, my sense is they might at this point go, well, all right, I'll wait till next episode. (laughs) Why should they hang in here with us? Well, the most obvious application for these things is going to be marriage because I do think that it has the potential for the most intimacy and it's the rightful occasion for the most intimacy. But also there are degrees of intimacy we experience in all of our relationships that a lot of this would apply, right? You know, so Luke and I have a degree of intimacy that's greater than some strangers that I have at a coffee shop, but also my wife and I have a degree of intimacy in every category that's substantially more than Luke and I. And so there, there are like we're relating with people all the time. Even when we're not relating with them, we're relating with them. You know, to, to not relate is a form of relationship. And so yeah. it'll all apply to all our relationships. I think we'll talk about it most explicitly and unapologetically in the context of marriage. Yeah. And I trust that you'll be able to just extrapolate from there. So the biblical story helps us become better spouses. So yes. tell us about that. And so the first thing we see in the biblical story is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which is remarkably positive. And that's hard for a lot of Christians to, to get, is that the Bible is a positive first book. Hmm. Yep. It sounds different because most people are raised being told Christianity is your sinner, Jesus died for your sins, period, the end. And that's true, but that's actually the middle of the story. It's not the beginning of the story. That where the yeah, story or, begins. Or there's this sense of like, well, God's good, but everything else is bad. Yeah, the, that the Bible the begins. The story is actually different than that. Bob begins talking about God making the world, and it was good, it was good, it was good. God makes humanity, and it's very good. So it's very high on humanity. And even like when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, when Moses wrote Genesis, he's writing it, you know, probably after the Exodus. So Israel had just been enslaved, and they're walking through the desert. And, and when Moses, by God's Spirit, is about to write these people and remind them of where they came from, who they are, he starts on a, on a positive note. Yeah. And so historically, Christians had a doctrine called Pelagianism, which is a heresy, which is the view that humans aren't originally sinful or the view that humans um, are inherently good. And so it's right for some Christians to be nervous about starting too positive on human nature because that's Pelagianism and it's a heresy. Uh, however, the way the Bible story starts is by affirming the dignity, value, and goodness of every human, uh, that they are made in God's image and likeness, that they're uh, worth giving honor to and respect from, that every human you encounter reflects to you somehow the particularity, a particularity of God's character, goodness, graciousness, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are in a relationship or if you're married and you begin from this biblical place of the person sitting in front of me is a sign of God. If you think mm. about like a sign, a sign points past itself to reality. Sure. It helps you navigate reality. Uh, the sign uh, draws your attention on purpose and it points you somewhere that the person in front of me is a signpost, a sign, an icon, a symbol, an image of God. And if you begin there, then you start from this position of this person has something to teach me. This person has value and dignity. Uh, this person is in the sense, glorious, because they're reflecting something absolutely magnificent, the eternal God of the universe. And they are absolutely worthy of my curiosity, of my consideration, of my veneration almost, uh, of absolute servitude. Yeah, respect, honor, yeah. cherishing, adoring. This, that all feels appropriate if yeah. this is a person made in God's image. Yeah, so the creation account gives this idea of, like, our spouse is a sign. Yeah. And... The secular account gives this idea that our spouse is a fizzing bag of atoms that happens to be kind of smacking into this other fizzing bag of atoms. But it makes me, but they, he or she makes me feel good. 
So yeah. that that they're valuable because of that. Yeah, but even your good feelings are just neurons firing for the sake of your DNA to be passed on. And so like total secular explanations of human relationships and human encounters make it actually impossible to really and truly honor your spouse because from a Darwinistic perspective, you have selected your spouse out of selfishness fundamentally so that you can pass on your genes to your kids, which is an inherently selfish act. And so it's not their value. Um, it's about how you can use them to pass on your genetic code to your, to your kids. And so there's inherently anti-human or dehumanizing motives in marriage if you're talking from a secular point of view. And so you, in, in sec, if in Christianity you have your spouse as a sign, uh, in, in secularism you have your spouse as an instrument. Uh, a tool who's helping you feel good about yourself, helping you feel good about your progeny, helping you pass on your genetic code. And any good feelings that come from that or any sense of legacy coming from that is ultimately just rooted in selfishness. Yeah. And it's rooted so, rooted in insecurity, trying to make sure that I love myself and there should be more of myself, and so I'm going to pass on myself. So I could imagine someone who comes from a more secular perspective here all that and go, that's not how I see my spouse. I see my spouse as worthy of respect and worthy of dignity and honor and veneration and all those things. And we're saying, yeah, that's true. You can have a secular worldview and treat your spouse as though they're an image bearer of God, but you're borrowing from a different view of the world. You're, you're having to be inconsistent with yourself in order to do that. And it's like, hey, that's good. I mean, I think your life's going to be better if you do that. But, yeah. but just our point here is really to go, you can totally do that. Nothing's stopping you from doing that, but it's not consistent. Yeah, and it's and that's a new view in world history, especially if a husband loves his wife. That is a historically weird position to hold because yeah. historically it was uh, the man is fully human, the wife is subhuman, and the wife is there to meet husband's needs, and he could toss her out at any time. And so this idea of like co-equality yeah. before God or co-equality of indignity and value that's new. Uh, it was not normal without Christianity being propagated throughout the world. And so I absolutely think that if you're a secular person listening to this, you should continue to steal from Christianity because I think that makes you a better spouse. But I just want to be honest about the origins of that view of dignity, value, and connection, and worth yeah. of where that comes from. That's, that's the first thing you get. So the first one is uh, creation is good in particular. People are made in the image of God. That would make you a better spouse. What's the next doctrine that has the, those kind of practical implications. Yes, yeah, so we have spouse and self as sign. That's number one. The second one we get is spouse and self as sinner. That sinners are, your spouse is a sinner, I'm a sinner, and uh, she's a sinner, I'm a sinner. And most people would consider these doctr that doctrine inherently negative because it, in a sense, is, but it's also sobering. Uh, it, it, I think, is illuminating. It helps me go, ah, there is inherent selfishness in me, and no, I don't want to normalize it in the sake of saying it's good and okay, but I do want to accept it as part of reality and not be in denial about it. Mm. And so when I have a doctrine of sin, then I can look at myself as being self-inclined, sometimes, not always, but very often. I can look at my spouse as being self-inclined sometimes, and I can see that as to some degree a virus or a bacteria, uh, something that has infected the good person, mm. and it's it's not them, but it is them. Mm. Yeah. And they are inherently signs of God, but also they're sinners who are rebelling against from the way that God has designed them. And so uh, there's this compassion for the sinner because you're going, you're not who you could be uh, because of the sin, that your sin is actually dehumanizing you, it's corrupting you, it's making you less of who you could be, uh, and you're willfully participating in it. 
And we see that sin produces suffering in the person and the other people. And so we don't want people to go on sinning. But uh, if I view myself as a sinner, then my need to be defensive when being corrected or confronted goes down. Hmm. Yeah. Because I can be uh, disappointed, but I'm not surprised when I'm being a sinner. Yeah. Like I want to feel sad over my sin. I want to grieve it. I want to lament it. I want to uh, own and acknowledge the pain it causes uh, to the Lord, to other people, to myself. Uh, but I'm not, I don't have to be defensive. Whereas if I'm subtly believing I'm not really a sinner, I'm just basically a sign, then someone comes to me with corrective feedback or says, hey, it made me feel like blank when you did blank, and my flinch is to be defensive. And so my, yeah. I, I put a shield up, and I get defensive. And the thing is, like, if I'm holding up a shield, it's inherently uh, inhibiting connection. Yeah. Right? And so, right. so if you're trying to approach me and I put up a shield or a wall or a fence, I'm stopping connection. I'm putting a bridge between us. And so whereas if I really believe I'm a sinner and you come with correction, that I can actually go, this is true of me, and I'm not going to be defensive or in denial about this reality, but I'm actually going to accept it. Yeah. Not because I like it, but I'm going to go, this is reality. That part of sober living is just living in the grain of reality, and the doctrine of sin, I think, makes sense of reality. Yeah, the doctrine of sin, I, I think, makes you go, okay, I'm, I'm humble because I realize I don't have everything together. But it also seems important that, that it's a doctrine of sin that's based, like you said, it's a it's a view of this is a distortion of the good that I truly was made to be. Because I know some people who say, well, yeah, you know, I'm a sinner. Hey, you know what? Boys will be boys. I'm a sinner. That's just who I am, yes. you know, whatever. And so if that's the doctrine of sin, that sin is ultimate, that sin is the final answer, that sin is the main thing that you are, you go, well, that that is actually going to probably lead you to complacency and you know, hey, you just got to accept me. Yes. Yeah. Sin- Versus saying, no, this actually isn't who I really am. This is a distortion. This is not good. This is not what I want. This is not what's best. I want to see this grow and change. And yeah, and, and a doctrine of sin frees us from calling everything a mistake, right? So like my, you know, my toddler spilled milk the other day, cried a bunch. And it wasn't like, well, people are sinners. People <laughs> spill stuff. You know, so this, this isn't, uh, that's actually called humanity. Like, Sure. Humans are finite. Humans are limited. Humans are developing. And if I miss a shot in basketball, that's not me being a sinner. That's me being human. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with being human. We don't need to repent of being human. We shouldn't feel shame about being human. We shouldn't feel shame about being limited. We shouldn't feel shame about making mistakes. Yep. But sin is not that. Uh, you know, boys will be boys is two toddlers kind of wrestling and then they bonk heads and they're crying now. Oh, boys will be boys. Like they're, they're small, they're small humans. Yep. Like, None of them was sinning against the other person. They were playing. Uh, sinning is like this rebellious selfishness. Yeah. And if we really understand sin, we don't go like, eh, nobody's perfect. Right. We go, we're grieved. We're saddened. Mm-hmm. We're going, I'm not living in the way that God's called me to live. And so we really need to be careful between calling our sin mistakes because it's not. Most of the time it's, birthed out of inconsiderate uh, attitudes or um, self-preoccupation or even just outright selfishness. And so even when, you know, I hurt my spouse and it wasn't like willful, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make her feel pain. Right. Like, like I'm not a psychopath, but there is like a lot of times when I hurt her, it's like I wasn't considering her experience or her perspective or her feelings. And so that self-preoccupation is the root of sin. And so, 
uh, it's it's not anticipating how it will play out in in her life. It's and so so it's actually like the lack of consideration is part of like the inward focusness that can be sinfulness. So the doctrine of sin should make us better spouses by making us more humble, more considerate, less defensive, less unapproachable, um, more compassionate with the struggles and sins that our spouse is having. I think there's also probably a, a place though in which a doctrine of sin uh, also allows you to confront and not. Just that you know, think, well, I got to be compassionate. They're a sinner, but say no that this is against the will of God, and it needs to change. And you know, sometimes we sin, but a pattern of sin that's developing and forming in you isn't good for you. It's not good for our marriage, and I'm gonna confront it. Um, so yeah, it seems like having a a, a, a full orbed doctrine of sin really would make you a better spouse. Yeah, and from a second perspective, where there's no sin because there's no norms, there's no design, there's no like creational vision for this is how you ought to live and sin's departure from that norm when you're a secular person you don't have norms you just have what is there's in this sense there is only what is there is no ought in a secular perspective and so sin is rebellion from what ought to be not just describing what is whereas from a darwinist perspective all you have is what is and yeah. so you can't really call something rebellion you can just call something maybe you broke a social covenant and you ex- you experienced you know my you know, if my wife and I decided that we're not going to do this, and I did that, and so I kind of broke her trust. Yeah. Um, but it's really humanistic in that, because uh, like, there's even ways that we can sin against our spouse that our spouse wants to minimize because of their past trauma or because of their other fears, hurts, and concerns that we have to be able to go, like, don't minimize that. God hates that. And we need to be okay with yeah. calling what is sin, sin. So biblical story gives us a good understanding of the image of God, a good understanding of sin, what are some of the other the next doctrines? one? The next one is uh, suffering. Hmm. That I think the biblical view of suffering is layered and complex. And so here's what I do think is that from like a secular psychological perspective, all human behavior or psychosis or misdirection is a product of suffering. Like it's the struggle to survive and pass on code, right? And so, so suffering kind of explains all things. And if you read, you know, the DSM-5 or if you read certain psychological books, a lot of it is like maladaption to suffering is the explanation of human personality or human disorder or human dysfunction. Whereas Christianity, we go, uh, some of the reason that we are disordered and, and whacked out is because we're adapting to suffering. We're in survival mode. Our nervous systems are elevated. You know, we're over-functioning. But also some of it is just pure selfishness and rebellion and sin. And sometimes delineating between those things isn't always clear. Uh, but again, part of it is like a biblical view of suffering and why we can take suffering so seriously and why I think suffering is such a theme throughout the scriptures, more so than even other ancient Asian documents, is because there's a strong sense that there's a way that things ought to be, that things were designed good. And suffering, one way of talking about suffering is it's the gap between our expectation based on the doctrine of, rea- of creation and our experience based on like our day-to-day lives going this doesn't feel like the Garden of Eden. We are certainly east of Eden. Things are not going great. Yeah. And and so suffering can be big. It can be small. It can be small disappointments. It can be large terminal uh, debilitating pain that causes blackouts. And so there's this huge gap in suffering. And so when I really believe that suffering is a bedrock part of a human experience, then again, I can be curious towards my spouse. And so um, if if I found my, spy, my spouse kind of in a reactive state, or elevated or over-functioning, uh, if I only have a doctrine of sinner, then I'm going, hey, stop. Yeah, right. But if, I'm, if I see them re- like reacting in a certain way, I can go like, 
hey, tell me about what's going on. What are you feeling nervous about? What happened right before this? What happened earlier this afternoon? What are you looking forward to that's uh, got your blood rate spiked? You know, and, and I, I actually can see the behavior and approach it with curiosity because most of the time I see like behavior as being like a downstream effect of situation and people trying to trying to be the best version of themselves they can be in the midst of some form of suffering or loneliness and things like that. And that's not to say that they're not also going to be sinners in that reality. But a lot of the time I find, at least in my marriage, it's usually some like situational stressor that's causing some type of like um, frenetic activity in myself or in, or in my wife. And, and again, going back to the Darwinist perspective, if, if you are, have a secular worldview, then suffering is not real. Hmm. Suffering is just neurons firing in a certain way um, that's designed to get your body to try to not recreate that experience. Whereas pleasure is neurons firing in a certain way that's designed to get your body to recreate that experience. Yeah. So it's just a signal of keep doing it or don't keep doing it. And it's not actually a disappointing reality. It's just what is, and it's, oh, well, not going to do that again. And so suffering is just a subjective experience. It's not actually an ontological a shift in the good that God created being less than and me walking in that environment. So the, what I'm going to say feels like maybe a, a little bit of a, a shift from what you're talking about related to that. But, but when you say the doctrine of sin or doctrine of suffering helps us be better spouses, one of the things I think about is just that promise that almost everybody makes when they do take their vows of sickness and in health, richer or poorer till death do us part. Right, there's this assumption built in of suffering and this call to be faithful through it, right? And it's pretty, I mean, it's staggering the number of people who receive difficult diagnoses and get left by a spouse. It's staggering the number of marriages that are, you know, torn apart by the loss of a child or the a, a child's difficult diagnosis. I mean, those kinds of sufferings really do rip apart marriages. Um, but understanding that, okay, suffering is part of the, the result of a distorted creation and yet God's in charge of it and God's sovereign in it and there's hope through it because he's faithful. seems like that would also help you be a better spouse. Yeah, and one of my good buddies has a couple kids with autism diagnoses and he was talking to me a couple weeks ago about how high the divorce rates are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very high. And, and like from his perspective, which so happens to be my perspective, so obviously I agree with it, you know, <laughs> is, is like when you read the Bible and you see suffering all over the place, then again, you're allowed to be disappointed but not surprised. Like that I'm living in a post-Genesis 3 world, and so when suffering comes my way, I'm not like, what? Yeah. How could this happen to me? I'm going, yeah, this is, the, this is the picture the Bible paints, and this is reality, and this is normal. And I've never met someone who hasn't substantially suffered in some way and I think that uh, one of my Bible teachers, Wayne Grudem, said I, he said that he never met a Christian who hadn't had some form of debilitating suffering before the age of 50. Mm, wow. That without exception in his life, you know, and, and I haven't gone through every person I've ever met and done that inventory, so I'm just going to say he said that. I'm not going to say that I said that. But just that. Uh, that yeah, well, that's one of those things where I'm sure, I mean, I listen to that and go, well, I can think of an exception. But I can think of a lot of a place where that actually probably rings true. Yeah, and even if I'm assuming there's an exception, I'm I probably that's don't know exception. that I don't know that whole person's life. You know, that's the nature of wisdom is they're generally true, not universally true. That's that's what wisdom is. So I think when you look at suffering and even the marriage vows, you know, sickness and health till death do us part. Uh, 
just this reality that like on the happiest day of your life, you're going, this will end bad. Right. One of us is going to die and leave the other one by themselves to cope with life. You're going, wow, what a happy marriage. <laughs> like that's, sure. that that's like crammed into the marriage. And the Christianity put that there, that we're going, hey, we're signing up to do hard stuff together and overcome it together. And that kind of covenantal view of things is significant. And, yeah. and I think that one of the things I want us to recognize is that there are certain forms of suffering where there's culpability that you shouldn't just go, you know what? God calls us to suffer, so I'm going to do it. You know, if, if I'm suffering at the hands of someone, right? Uh, I, again, don't want to be surprised by that, but I'm not just going to go, well, the Lord has given me this, so I'm just going to endure it. Uh, there is an element of if I'm suffering at the hands of someone, then the doctrine of sin frees me to go, it's actually loving to them for me not to endure this, and I should either stop them or get away from them. And doc, so that's part of what I mean in, in this regard is if you're like, like this happens all the time. You have a, a Christian wife who has a strong doctrine of suffering and, and maybe her own sin. Mm-hmm. And she goes, God calls us to suffer. My husband abuses me and I'm going to suffer well. Yep. But if I you made a commitment till death do us part, till death do us part. Right. And I want to go like, that's part of the reality also, your husband is a sinner, and God hates his sin, and you know, resisting his sin is part of what love looks like. And resisting can look like fleeing, resisting can look like reporting, resisting can look like getting a pastor involved. Um, or likewise, you know, a husband who only has a doctrine of, uh, of himself as sign. Yeah. Or we're going to the next one, which is, we're going to call it saint, you know. I'm made in the image of God and I'm therefore good and God is at work in me and therefore I'm be- becoming made better. I'm a new creation. And he's no longer close to his own sin. He's no longer close to uh, his his distorted reaction, his own suffering. He's not processing his trauma well and so he's just passing it on. You know, if you don't transform it, you transmit it in, yeah. when it comes to suffering. And so you have, now that's the worst husband ever. It's someone with a doctrine of the image of God and a doctrine of the Holy Spirit working in their life but they've lost their own doctrine of suffering and lost their doctrine. And now yeah. so you have this terrible one. That's like where, why I think so many Christian marriages have some form of abuse as you have of wife who has a strong doctrine of suffering and a husband with a strong doctrine of himself as being sanctified. And the lack of balance creates this abusive situation. Yeah. Well, you just kind of took us into the next place. So yeah. I'm guessing the next one is a doctrine of sainthood. Yeah. Sainthood or sanctification. I'm trying to hold to all these S's here. So you have, Sign, suffer, sinner, sanctification. Oh, nice. So there you go. Uh, could have been a blog, but here we are. So sanctification is this view that God is making us holy over time, that the Holy Spirit, so so sanctification is the, the process by which we become more holy, Yeah. and the Holy Spirit enters us and makes us holy over time. This is kind of like the stock market. You know, there's ups and downs, and there are recessions, bear markets, bull markets, et cetera. Sure, yeah. But generally speaking, it's up and to the right in the long view. Yeah. And so this is, I think, a healthy view of Christian sanctification is we're not always getting holier, but in general, we should be getting holier as a spirit works. Yeah, the idea is that in justification, we come to faith in Christ, we're declared righteous, we're declared to be holy. Um, But sanctification is the process of actually becoming like that in our real lives. Yeah, it's, it's the grace working into our bones and getting into our lives and and healing our instincts and our flinches and our desires, and that takes a long time, right? It's so like you think about like physical therapy, you know, you you break your femur, and then 
you have it in a cast for a little while. There's and but then to get the muscle back takes a long time, and sure. sin really damages us. And so, like to to heal from that takes a long time, and, and yeah. it's, it's our soul, not just our our quads, that need to be rebuilt. And so, so, so why is that doctrine helpful for marriage? The doctrine's helpful for marriage for two reasons. One, it helps me see myself as being in process, and it helps me see my spouse as being in process, and it enables me to celebrate the process and celebrate the the glimmers of growth. Yeah. Like, hey, Luke, you used to act like this in the situation, and then last week I saw that same situation happen, and you know what? You didn't withdraw and get on your phone. You stayed engaged. Yeah. You know, I, I see your progress. God's working in your life, yep. and I'm, I'm okay with celebrating your process and the progress without just kind of waiting until you're just all the way changed all the time. Yeah. And so I can acknowledge growth incrementally Without it equaling, I'm dismissing the remainder of the growth that you're required to do. It's like I talk about this sometimes in marriage counseling, that like when a marriage is in a bad place, it's kind of like they were on the path and they got lost in the woods. <laughs> yeah. And now they're coming in marriage counseling, and it's because they're seven miles off the path, lost in the woods. And the even them coming into marriage counseling is kind of like them turning back towards the path yeah. and taking a step. So now they're 6.9 miles lost in the woods. And so if you evaluate them on the basis of position, they are still in very, very, very bad shape. Yeah. But if you evaluate them on the basis of process or progress or direction or, or, direction yeah. or posture, sure. you're going, hey, there is improvement. It's incremental. You still have a ton of work to do, but let's thank the Lord for the trajectory change that we're seeing here. You know, And so do not bake yourself a cake and throw yourself a party yet. However, I see movement and I'm I want to like fan into flame. I think that's part of what Paul gets about when he's talking about fanning into flame. Yeah. The gifts Yep, that there's like, you know, the gift isn't all the way mature yet. You're not all the way holy yet, but it needs fanning. And I think that encouragement, like to instill courage in others, stay the course, keep going. I see what God's doing in your life is part of that. And so that, yeah, that, that feels really hopeful too. Yeah. It creates patience in me. Yeah. And uh, it also means that I'm not going to be demanding that my spouse celebrate me. Hmm. right? Like I'm making progress, acknowledge it. Right. And <laughs> because I'm going, I'm making progress. Yes. Uh, but also I am not there yet. Yeah. And so when I really have that humility of recognizing that I'm making progress by power of the spirit and so is my spouse, then when they acknowledge it, I can be grateful, but I'm not going to go around demanding that they acknowledge it because that's just foolish that I know because I'm still a sinner, despite being made to being sanctified, um, that there's there's hope for me. And I also am recognizing that my character development is a long game thing, that I'm not going to like life hack myself into just being more Christ-like this week, that there is a long-term investment in my spiritual well-being, that I'm trying, like the, the main metaphor you get for spiritual growth in, in Psalm chapter one is that we're like trees. And if you've ever planted a tree, you know it's mostly terrible to watch it grow. Thank you. You check in on it seasonally, you trim it every now and then, but you you don't see a tree every week and go like, wow, look at the growth. You, yeah. But you might season to season go like, wow, look at the growth. But certainly every decade you, you should be going, wow, look at the growth. And I think it's similar for hum- humans that and our spouses that we have this view of sanctification. So you've been throughout this comparing these different doctrines to the lack thereof in the secular worldview. I'm curious on this one. I mean, I think about a secular 
progressive kind of worldview that says, hey, everything eventually gets better through science and technology and education, those sorts of things. And I'm thinking as long as I marry somebody that's like working on themselves, then, hey, I'm, I have, that, that's kind of the same thing, right? Like, is that, is that the same thing or is there a difference? Well, it's certainly true that people can develop strategies to cope with and handle and process their suffering more effectively um, using non-Christian means. Like I think, and I'm grateful for it, that there are tremendous trauma therapists out there doing meaningful good work that are helping people process their maladaption and suffering and thinking through better strategies to remain open and receptive in the midst of suffering. And so like survival skills, suffering, those type of emotional resources are certainly available to non-Christians. But I think part of the difference is in the secular worldview, you're going, what is the goal you're working towards? What is the fully human life? What is human flourishing? What is the direction we're shooting towards? Right? And most people, if you ask anybody in the West, you'd say, what does it mean to be a highly functioning, well-adapted human being? They might say something like this, kind, gentle, self-controlled, loving, peaceful, patient you know and they're gonna they're gonna go describing something and what they're gonna be describing is some form of the fruit of the spirit uh, right and so sure. I, I like whereas if you went and asked someone in viking town wherever that is <laughs> 13th century i want to go to viking town viking town, 13th fun. century and i'm not talking about someplace in minnesota where they wear purple but like the <laughs> but if you say yeah. what does it mean to be a fully functioning human you'd say like good with a sword <laughs> right unafraid in battle yeah uh you know, willing to kill because they were disrespected or dishonored, right. you know, you know, impregnating tremendous amounts of women, you know, or. Yeah. The, know, the, the, do, the like, values of the, the mature good person are shifting based on cultural. Yeah. Dynamics. From society to society, yeah. from era to era, what is a high functioning, like what does it mean to be a good man or a good woman yeah. changes from place to place. And, and at least in the West, at least in the American culture that, when people really go like, what does it mean to be a high functioning, fully flourishing human being? They're going to end up describing something like yeah. a well-rounded picture of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Able to confront, not a people pleaser, well-boundaried, not tossed to and fro by the crowds, considerate, loving, kind, serving, not a doormat, you know? And, and like, so this kind of nuanced balance of what it means. I'm going the, even the vision you're working towards as a secular person is some degree a ripoff of Jesus. Yeah especially if you're in the West. It might be different in other culture moments, but for us, it's absolutely the case. And the second thing I'd say is that if you are celebrating your progress on the virtue of you, uh, what you end up doing is like developing a latent self-righteousness that's deep a foundation to your heart, mind, and soul, that going like, I am becoming a better person because I am doing the work I need to do. And so when I now encounter other people, who are not becoming the better person or they're not doing the work they need to do, then I look at going, well, that separates them from me is I'm better than them. Yeah. I'm me. I have done the work required. I have taken responsibility. They have not taken responsibility. They avoid responsibility. They've continued to maladapt. They're using a the med- So like there ends up being like a, another version of strong versus weak. I had the spine to do it. They did not have the spine to do it. And that subtle but also substantial self-righteousness is what's projected in the world all the time that if uh, other people were more like me then the society would be a better place and it makes me think back to um, like it was 
I think it was G.K. Chesterton did this back in the early 1900s. They had this uh, a British newspaper wrote said, hey, what is the biggest problem in the world? Write in your answer. And people wrote in. Yeah, and different philosophers and thinkers. Yeah, philosophers, not just like thinkers, random, psychologists you know, wrote in. Yeah. Like, here's what we think the biggest problem in the world is. And it ends, everybody's answer ends up being some version of people aren't like me or they don't have my worldview. They don't have my perspective of economics or if world leaders would just think my thoughts after me. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in and said, me. Yeah, that was his essay. Yeah. I am. I am. End of essay. <laughs> I'm the biggest problem in the world. Yeah. And you could look at that as self-deprecating comedy. You could look at that as unnecessarily navel-gazy. I look at that and go like, that's a person who is in touch with their own sinfulness. A person, so G.K. Chesterton was a remarkably healthy person who was contributing to society in a ton of beautiful ways, but he attributed his goodness and sanctification to the grace of God, not to his own personal work ethic. And so the biggest deficiency on the sanctification side that you get from a second perspective is it ends up being just me, myself, and I improving me, myself, and I for the sake of everybody hopefully should be like me, myself, and I. Hmm. And even if that person is becoming healthier, more open, more receptive, more curious, like a highly trained uh, like psychologist, something like that, uh, it's still like the bedrock going to be. I am awesome. It reminds me of like I think one of the shows I watched growing up a ton was Frasier. Okay, you know, have these two psychoanalysts yeah. who who are just absolutely self obsessed, and <laughs> they're students of humanity, but it ends up being just kind of this uh, dehumanizing. These dysfunctional people can't adapt like me, and they're also dysfunctional, but they're just in denial about it. Yeah. And so, so I think that practically speaking, the Bible and its vision for humanity, the biblical story of signs, suffers, sinners, and saints, the sanctified ones, that if you want a healthy marriage, you actually have to have all four of those things. And you're either going to get it from Christianity and say it's from Christianity, or you're going to borrow it from Christianity and remain a secular person. Yeah. Well, let me ask one more question as we wrap up is, I know a lot of people who would you know, pass the quiz that you give them on those four things, sign, sin, suffer, saint. Like, I know lots of people that go, yeah, 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 I agree with that. The church I go to, I go to because I agree with those things, right? And it's all in the head, but it isn't happening. It's not creating a better spouse. In some ways, it might be creating a worse spouse because it's this unrighteousness masquerading as holiness and rightness and whatever how do you how does the concept that ought to work out in real life how does it actually get into real life yeah there's a huge difference between having the tools and using the tools i have a lot of tools and when certain stuff breaks in my house i still have to call someone <laughs> sure right and because they come use your tools it's nice they don't have to bring their and they could use them. my tools right <laughs> and and that person who comes to my house and fixes something they have the same tools as me you right. know and and but it, like there is a gap in having the tools versus using the tools. And so what I'm saying is Christianity has the tools, whether Christians make use of them or not, is a different a, thing. a different thing. And that's partly the doctrine of sin, partly the doctrine of suffering, is we have the tools we don't use them. Yeah. Sometimes because we're selfish, sometimes because we're fear of, or pain avoidant. Uh, but the main re- so having the tools, using the tools. How do we get to use the tools? And this is how like how does it land? How does it play out? How does it function? This is always a relational process that's rooted in vulnerability being able to have, like, to choose to suffer in a way of going, I will go to my closest friends or my closest family and say, 
tell me about how you see me as a saint. Some people cannot handle that. <laughs> like, tell me about how I uniquely reflect God to you. And that is a vulnerable thing to be spoken highly of in eye contact. People yep. don't like that. Right. Similarly, tell me about how I sin. Tell me about the ways that I fall short. Ways you think I know about, ways you think I don't know about. Similarly, tell me about the suffering you've seen in my life. Because we tend to be suffering minimizers all the time. Ah, that's not suffering. Yeah, but, you know, uh, they have it much worse, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to a good friend at the gym this morning. And she was telling me about her mom. And and I just said, that is terrible. And it's normal, but it doesn't make it not terrible. Like, her mom's suffering, and it's difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and she started to tear up and cry because she had been minimizing it. Yeah. Or at least had been, like, kind of denying it or just being angry about it. Yep. Right? And sometimes you need someone to say, look us in the eye and say, like, that is suffering. It's not fair. And I'm sorry going through that. Yep. And so we need that. And, and even, like, and so in the fourth one, especially those of us who are like the most self-hating type folks. You know, some people hear like self, self-righteousness. self Yeah, right. How about self-loathing? Tell me about that. Right. You know, tell me about how you see God at work in my life. Tell me what you see God doing. And so all of those prompts or questions, going to someone, someone close to us, uh, for different people, those four things are differently difficult. Some people love being told, tell me how I suck. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> Other people love being told, tell me how I'm awesome. Yeah. And, and just the reality that in different seasons of our life, those different things need to be told to us, that we need to be affirmed, we need to be critiqued, we need to be challenged, we need to be encouraged. And so I think even those four categories, um, creating prompts for like vulnerable relational connection is the way you work it into your life. There's really no yeah. speed, fast thing to that. Well, and if, if the gut instinct of, of a person is Christianity is about helping me, a good person, become better, you're never going to be able to be that vulnerable. Yeah. But if Christianity is in order to get into it, I have to be vulnerable by admitting that I'm a sinner, by admitting I need grace, by admitting I need forgiveness, by admitting that I want Jesus to change and transform me. Then as we lean into that instinct of Christianity, again, it's a tool that should help us to grow in that way. Yeah. And so ultimately what this gives us is a picture of ourselves and our spouses as being complex or multi-layered. So when I see my spouse, I see four lenses all the time. Like I kind of Right. And said she's simultaneously saint, sinner, sufferer, sign. Yep. And so part of what I recognize is my temptation to reduce her to one of those or two of those things at any given time or vice versa the other way, that there's all these things going on all at the same time in this person. And when I see myself and my spouse as complex, then that makes me curious. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not quick to judge or prejudge or be prejudiced. Um, or go, well, this is in the past, so this is how it is now. And so I think that's all part of the process is the the beginning from this place of um, complexity rooted in reality. The Bible story tells us actually enables me to move towards my spouse and I let them move towards me and facilitates meaningful connection that way. Awesome. Well, as we think about critiquing the hell out of culture, the hellish aspects of, of culture that are out there and that are in us, I just can't think of something that's more significant for the light that we can shine into the world than our marriages. So uh, this has been helpful. Thanks for your thought and reflection. And um, yeah, I think that does it for today. Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, join us September, uh, whatever it was. Was it 19th? 19th. Monday, September King 19th. and Culture Live. That'll be fun. And until then, we'll see you next time.